0: Thanks Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us uh, this morning as Dave read, we will be in Romans 5:15 through 17 as you are turning there. Uh, you probably know we have this uh, preaching rotation uh, here at uh, at Parkway, and some of you might try to figure it out. You might try to, to say, you know what, we're going to skip the weeks that Jeff preaches or skip the weeks that Zach preaches or certainly skip the weeks that Carl or Tim preaches or whatever it might be. Uh, but we have this rotation. Typically, it's Zach or myself, uh, but uh, sometimes it is uh, one of the other staff members, Carl uh, or, uh, or Tim. And, uh, and, and so we have a lot of things in common. The, the four of us staff members, we have a lot of things in common. We're all men, even though the other day uh, we were at uh, kind of, we have a, a weekly family uh, staff dinner. All of our families get together, and Tim was asking Zach's son, is this person a man? Is this person a man? And, uh, and so man, Carl is a man, Zach is a man, and uh, and Tim is a man, but when it got to me, nope, not at all. And uh, and so already, already Zach is training him against me. And uh, so we're all men. We all live in uh, all live in McKinney. We all love Parkway. Uh, no one has any plans to uh, kind of. Uh, form some sort of a coup d'etat or something like that. There's no uh, sort of progression plan here. There's no desire for any of us to go off and quote-unquote do our own thing or something like that. This is where we want to spend our lives. We all love the kingdom. We love McKinney. Uh, We love what the Lord is doing here. We love the scriptures. We love theology. So there's all these different things that we share in common. There's also a number of things that we don't share in common. There are a number of Dissimilarities, if you will, and a lot of those are really low-hanging fruit. And so, I'm not going to mention some of those and uh, and throw the guys under the bus as I would typically do. Uh, instead, I want to give you some of the contrasts that you might not be aware of, areas in which the the various staff members are uh, dissimilar that you might not know. And so, the first one that I thought of was the the fact that uh, Zach, if you go into his office, he shares an office uh, with Carl. And if you go into his office, on his desk, he has these jelly beans. And don't be tricked by these jelly beans. These jelly beans are a mixture of normal flavors. I don't know what normal flavors of jelly beans are, but normal jelly bean flavors. And then also these novelty tastes like uh, raw eggs or uh, old eggs or stinky socks or uh, whatever it might be. And so uh, Zach likes to play this game. He likes to challenge people uh, to reach in and to grab one and just kind of hope for the best. Hope that you get an actual real jelly bean and uh, you don't get uh, something uh, that tastes really bad. I, on the other hand, I see no point in this. I'm an adult. Candy doesn't play a big part in my life. I don't really care all that much for normal jelly beans, so best-case scenario, I get something that I'm apathetic towards, worst-case scenario, I throw up I have a really weak stomach, and the idea of eating, like, stinky socks or whatever it is uh, does not appeal to me. I think dog food uh, is one of them, and, uh, and so that is something that I definitely do not want to do. Now, uh, another difference between us, Carl and Tim, you probably noticed uh, Tim. Uh, playing here, leading us in worship. Well, Carl has a uh, master's degree in French horn performance. Both of these guys are super talented musicians. I never learned how to play the recorder in elementary school. Like whenever you're supposed to learn how to play by the end of uh, you know, whatever grade it is, you're supposed to be able to play Hot Cross Buns or uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I never could do that. Literally, I think I actually failed, and Miss Fletcher, that was my, uh, my music teacher, I think she just passed me out of pity because she knew my mom or something like that. Otherwise, I would still be in elementary school, failing every single year because I have no musical talent. I probably would dominate dodgeball, though. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have no musical talent whatsoever. Another difference, Tim is, uh, is super mechanically gifted. And, uh, and so whenever he was in high school, he used to rebuild engines. I'm the opposite of that. Whatever that is, I'm the exact opposite. Whether it's uh, talent or discipline or intelligence, whatever it is that makes someone be able to rebuild an engine, I don't have that. Uh, I once uh, had this, uh, it was actually my my brother's car, he's here today, Uh, but uh, it got handed down to me, it was a uh, 1992 uh, blue Plymouth Laser, electric blue Plymouth Laser. Uh, That's no one's dream car. But anyway... I uh, had this car, and, uh, and I was going down the highway about 60, and I thought, what would happen if I tried to put this in reverse? So I pressed in the clutch, popped it in reverse. My transmission completely died. I've broken more cars than I've fixed. I'm like the mechanical equivalent of Lenny, like of Mice and Men or something like that. I have no talent whatsoever when it comes to these sorts of things. I could keep going on and on and on about all the different ways that we're different. We mentioned a number of them uh, each week in sermons, but uh, the point remains, the point I think should be obvious, that there are all these contrasts that exist between us. That's what our passage is about this morning. Our passage this morning is about comparing in some sense and then also contrasting in some sense these two historical individuals, Adam and Jesus. That's what our passage is about, comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. And though they certainly share certain similarities, the point of the passage is really not in the ways that they're similar. The point of our passage this morning is all the ways that they are different all the contrast that exists between these, uh, these two characters. And the reason that Paul uses this is so that we would see this imagery of the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus Christ. Even as we were singing a moment ago, when we said it over and over, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. That's the point. That's the theme. That's the motif of our text this morning, that we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ over this historical person of Adam. And so that's the contrast that we're going to talk about. But I want, before we really dive into the passage, I, I want to ask and answer a question that none of us good church folk would ever really dare to ask, but a lot of us actually feel, and that is, what's the point? What, is, what does it matter? What does this contrast between Adam and Jesus Really matter? Why can't we just skip forward to the good parts? Whatever the good parts are Romans 6, you really love, or Romans 8, you really love, or in Romans 12, where it begins to uh, move into a section of Romans that actually gets some application. Why don't we get to the good stuff? And I'm here to tell you this is the good stuff. So I want to give you three reasons before we pray and uh, turn our attention to the text. I want to give you three reasons why this is not just a jungle of theological jargon but this is profoundly important for us to recognize. The first reason is because understanding what Paul is doing here in this text provides for us a pattern for how to read the Old Testament in general. As we see this contrast that exists, you see the Old Testament is full of these shadows, and all of these shadows are not the point. A shadow is never the point. A shadow is always pointing towards substance. That's what these Old Testament stories are doing. So as you uh, consider Adam, you're not just considering Adam. You're considering Adam as he's contrasted with Christ. As you study the, uh, the story of David and Goliath, you're not just reading a story about a little shepherd boy and a giant. You're reading a story about this seemingly invincible enemy of God's people being slaughtered, being slain, being defeated by this little unassuming future king. That's the gospel, that we have had this great enemy that has been defeated for us by our king. And so this uh, text and the way that we see the relationship between Christ and Adam can change the way that we read the Old Testament as we see that these stories don't terminate on themselves, they actually reach their conclusion In Jesus Christ. The second reason that this is important is because all of those sections of Romans that you do love, all of the things, if I were to give you a a controller and to say rewind or, or fast forward to the part of Romans that you really want to get to, whether it's chapter six or chapter eight or chapter 12 or 13 or whatever it might be, whatever it is that you want to fast forward to, that only exists, that only makes sense because of the things that we've been talking about. In Romans 3, in Romans 4, in Romans 5, this is the foundation that all of the rest of the text is going to be built on. And so it's kind of like if we were to say, you know what, I'm going to skip pouring the concrete, I'm going to skip framing the house, I just want to start decorating the walls. There's nothing to decorate. This is the gospel foundation that we're getting here. And the third reason that this is important for us is because it fuels our worship. We talk about this all the time, that your theology presents the ceiling for your doxology or your worship, that the more you know about Jesus and what He has done, the higher your affections are able to raise for Him. The more fuel that is gathering, the more kindling that is gathered for the fire, the greater opportunity you have to experience joy and hope. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're not going to give some sort of a three points in a poem. We don't have five steps to a new you or your best life or anything like that, but there are a whole lot of implications in this text. Even if there's not a whole lot of application, there's a whole lot of implications and truths to behold, and if we would only behold them, we would be transformed by them. So I hope that we would be excited as we dig into the text together, and so let's pray, and, uh, and then we will do so. I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself. Whatever doubts you have, whatever distractions you have, ask that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And then would you pray a corporate prayer for our body, for those around you, whether you know them or not, for your, your spouse, your parents, your kids, strangers. And then lastly, would you pray for me? That I would be faithful and tethered to God's word, and would expound it correctly. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask these things in hope and expectation because you're good, and all you do is good. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at uh, verse 15. Again, Romans 5, starting in verse 15, Paul writes this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, that's a mouthful. That's what we're going to try to expound upon today. And to really begin to work through this, we need to go back to what we talked about last week. Last week, we, uh, we looked at, uh, towards the end, verse 14. We're going to put that up on the screen. Uh, and if you would consider that with me. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a, and this is the key word there to notice, who was a type of the one who was to come. This entire passage is built upon this idea of typology. Now, the way that you and I use the word type uh, is going to be really different from the way that it's used in theology. We typically, no pun intended, we typically think of and use the word type in a way that's actually confusing uh, whenever we try to use that in reference to theology. So, for example, I might say that bacon is a type of food, and that is the way that we would use it in English. I might say that a Civic is a type of Honda, and a Honda is a type of car or something like that, but that's not the way that we use the word type in theology. That's not the way that Paul is using the word type there in verse 14. When I say that, a, that bacon is a type of food, I mean that bacon really is food. It's delicious. You should eat it, maybe for lunch bacon is food. So when I say bacon is a type of food, I mean bacon actually is food. But when I say that Adam is a type of Christ, I don't mean in any sense that Adam is Christ. It means something totally different in theology than the way that we tend to use it. So why do we call it a type? Well, in that verse, in verse 14, you see there the word type that is used, and the word there in Greek is stupos, or depending on your uh, uh, pronunciation of it, typos. It's just a, uh, it's a, a transliteration, it's a cognate uh, from Greek that we just simply have brought over into English. So what is a type? A type is this uh, aspect of prophetic symbolism, this aspect of prophetic symbolism in which a person, a place, an event, or a thing particularly in the Old Testament as we're using it in theology, a person, place, event, or thing in the Old Testament is going to foreshadow this fulfillment in the New Testament. And what it foreshadows is Jesus. Jesus is the great antitype. He is the fulfillment of all of these shadows. The Old Testament presents shadows. Jesus is the substance. Adam is a type of Christ means Adam is a shadow somewhat similar to but also distinct from and contrasted from Jesus. That's what this entire passage is building on. And the entire Old Testament is filled with this uh, sort of uh, imagery of typology. For example, the temple is a type. The temple is the type, and Jesus is the anti-type. He's the fulfillment, if you will. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. He is the place uh, in which uh, God and man dwell together. All of the things that the temple is intended to signify in a shadowy sense, Jesus fulfills with the substance. He brings it to its culmination and to its resolution. The Passover is a type. Jesus is the anti-type or the fulfillment. He's the better sacrificial lamb slaughtered to ransom God's people from slavery. Melchizedek is a type. Moses is a type. Manna is a type. The offices of Israel, prophet, priest, and king, all of these are types. And on and on we could go with these types. And then the New Testament fulfillment, Jesus being the great anti-type, the entire Old Testament is filled with shadows of which Jesus is the substance. And so even though the word type is not in our passage this morning. It's not in verse 15 or 16 or 17. Even though this word is not in our passage this morning, in order to understand the passage, you need to understand this concept, which was introduced there in verse 14. The entire section that we're in in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, this is a little subsection here in Romans. This entire section consists of this thing that's called typology. And it compares and contrasts these two individuals, Adam and Jesus. They share certain similarities, to be certain, but they also share these dissimilarities. Some of the similarities that you see between the two characters, both are representative of a larger group of people. Zach talked about that this morning in uh, theological equipping, that Adam represents all sinful humanity, that Christ represents all redeemed humanity. That both are seen as these sort of federal heads. They're both seen as ambassadors. They're both seen as representatives for all who are in them. Those who are in Adam are represented by Adam. Those who are in Christ are represented by Christ. Secondly, as representatives, they both have determinative significance for all who are associated with them, whether curses or blessings. Adam is unfaithful, and so curses pass down from him. Jesus is faithful, and so blessings pass down through him. Third, they're both representative of some type of creation. Adam represents old creation, original creation. Jesus represents new creation. Again, another similarity between them. Fourth, they're both tempted in the garden, and a tree of some sorts functions significantly. Fifth, both experience this sort of deep sleep, and as they are sleeping, From their wounded side emerges this beautiful bride. There's all these different uh, similarities that exist. Uh, I think uh, Zach gave a a handful of others in theological equipping uh, this morning. There's all these similarities that exist, uh, ways in which whenever uh, we read the account of Adam, we're supposed to see, uh, in a sense, a foreshadowing of Jesus. But in addition to these similarities, there's also these dissimilarities. And that's the point of the passage this morning, not all the ways in which they are like, but all the ways in which they are unlike. That Christ is greater. He's greater in degree and He's greater in consequence. That Adam represents trespass and sin, whereas Christ represents faithfulness and obedience. Adam brings condemnation. Jesus brings justification. Adam brings death. Christ brings life. And on and on we could go. And so Paul begins here with this contrast, with the difference between what he calls the free gift and the trespass. That Christ's free gift is not like Adam's sin and that one brings death to many, whereas the other brings grace to many. And this point here is this. If you think that Adam's fall was impressive, then consider Christ's redemption. If I were to take this uh, water bottle right now and I were to drop it, that would be completely expected by you. Maybe not for me to drop it, but if it falls, that would be expected. But if it were to float, if it were to all of a sudden begin to fly up in the air, that would be all that much more impressive. That's kind of the imagery that I get from this passage. It's relatively easy to take life as Adam's sin did, but to raise it up from the dead, that's completely different. That's no easy task. There's this contrast that exists there, Adam's sin bringing death, Christ's righteousness bringing life to us, that those who died as a result of Adam's trespass deserved death. They merely got what they deserved because they too sinned, but those who live as a result of Christ's righteousness, they don't deserve life. There's this profound difference. That's the grace that he's highlighting here in this passage I thought of this example uh, uh, earlier, and uh, so I wanted to share it. Uh, When I was a teenager, my uh, entire extended family on my mom's side, we went uh, to Garner State Park in the hill country. and, uh, And so while we were there, my mom got stung by a scorpion, which doesn't have anything to do with the story, but my dad gives me a hard time for using him in illustrations and not using my mom. So I mentioned that just to appease him. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to the illustration. So we're, we're there. Uh, if you've ever been to, to Garner State Park, you have the Frio River there, which is like uh, the Guadalupe or something, only better. It's actually like clear. You can see it. There's no snakes in there or anything like that. It's spring-fed. It's cold. That's why it's called the Frio River. And so we floated on the, the, the Frio River on our inner tubes uh, all day long. And then as we're getting out of the water, uh, my Uncle Steve, uh, who was a bit of a nut, Uh, he said, uh, he started talking about his days back in the Navy. It was kind of an Uncle Rico sort of moment, and he's talking about his days back in the Navy, and he looks at the water, and he says, you know what? I think I could swim up to that bend uh, in, uh, in the river. And we look, and it's like 50 yards, and the current is moving really quickly. And so, my brother and I are like, man, do it. And, uh, and so we challenge him, and so he jumps in, and man, it is just this beautiful sight to behold, this perfect naval uh, uh, form that he's got going on, looks like a majestic salmon or something, just swimming upstream, and he is going, his arms and his legs are in perfect rhythm, and he rises after about a minute, uh, and, uh, and he triumphantly raises his arms in the air, and he is literally no further than when he began. Literally did not make it at at all upriver, but also didn't go downriver, which itself is uh, somewhat uh, impressive. We had drifted on inner tubes all day long. Didn't take any effort whatsoever. Didn't have to get out, didn't have to swim upstream, didn't have to walk, didn't have to do anything. We literally just sat there. And because there was this drift, because there was this current, we simply went along with it. That doesn't take any effort whatsoever, but to swim against the stream takes strength. It takes discipline. It takes effort. That's the contrast here, that Adam's sin just puts us in this river, and we're just drifting. We just get what should be expected, what we deserve. Christ brings about something that's completely unexpected. There's this scandalous nature to His grace where we get something that should not have been uh, expected at all. It's surprising, That's the imagery that uh, we get here, that there's nothing surprising. There's nothing unexpected or impressive about Adam's disobedience bringing death. There's something downright scandalous about grace. It's like this brilliant light appearing all of a sudden in the midst of an infinite expanse of darkness. And then consider this phrase here. You'll see it uh, not only here, but in another verse uh, as well. It says, much more. See that there in verse 15, much more. Not only is Christ's gift all that much more impressive, but also it's that much more certain. I want you to think about for a second the utter universality of death. You might delay it a while. You have the right diet, the right exercise. But no matter how much CrossFit you do, no matter how many essential oils you take, You can't escape it. There's no escaping from death. It is utterly universal in its design and in its scope and in its reach. There's no escape from it. In fact, I think a lot of the people that I know that do CrossFit are probably going to die earlier because they're always getting injured when they do it. And the image there is if if death is universal, if death is this sort of unbeatable, inescapable reality for all who are in Adam how much more is the grace of God as it abounds to those in Christ? None who are in Adam fail to receive death. None who are in Christ fail to receive grace. And not only grace, but an abundance of it. That the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And yet I think many of us struggle at this very point. We think, for whatever reason, we think we'll be overlooked when it comes to grace. We'll be ignored when it comes to grace. We'll be rejected or cast off. We think our sin is too gross. We think our stories are too boring. We think our love is too cold. But if death doesn't forget anyone under Adam, then neither will grace overlook anyone in Christ. Thinking that you, Christian, thinking that you somehow can be overlooked by God's grace, is absurd as hearing someone say, I think that I can exercise myself into immorality. Immortality. (laughs) Immorality is different. I guess you could exercise yourself into immorality. (laughs) Immortality is what I meant. It's just as silly. It's just as silly as thinking that you're beyond the reach of grace, that the effects of grace, according to this passage, are much more certain than the effects of condemnation. Let's keep going. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We've been talking about justification uh, over the past uh, few weeks, in particular uh, looking at uh, chapter 4, beginning at the end of chapter 3, but going into chapter 4, that's really the point. Of Romans 3 through 4 is this idea of justification. So we defined it a few weeks back because we didn't want to assume that everyone knows what this term means. It's one of these terms that you hear your entire life, but if someone asks you to uh, define it, you kind of stutter and stammer and throw out something about righteousness, and that's about it. And so we defined it, and we said that it is an act of God whereby He credits the unrighteous as having the status of righteous which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. I want to read that again. An act of God, this is something He does, not us, whereby He credits the unrighteous. We really are unrighteous, but He credits us as having the status of righteous. And then what does that mean? It means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. It's not just a negative thing. It's not just the absence of negativity. It's the presence of something positive. It's the presence of positive righteousness. It's the presence of uh, moral perfection. And so we see here this contrast between what Adam gives, which is condemnation, and what Christ gives, which is justification. And how many sins did Adam have to commit in order to bring condemnation to the world, according to this passage? Just one. One sin. That's all it took. One sin of defiance. And the lights of righteousness over all of creation were burned out. One man, one sin, and darkness and death spread throughout the entire world. But on the other side of the ledger, by one man, how many sins were forgiven? It says here, many trespasses. There's this contrast between one act of disobedience, which brings death to many, and one life of obedience which brings life to many, even many who committed many trespasses. Think about that phrase there, many trespasses. That's the understatement of the year. That's like saying there's many stars in the sky. Now, if you're sitting in your backyard here in McKinney with all of the light pollution from the Metroplex, yeah, you might see many stars. You might see... A couple of dozens, maybe on a clear night or something like that. The other night, uh, I uh, put up a tent in my backyard and uh, put Larkin in there, and she and I uh, were going to sleep out in the tent. And Casey was going to sleep in the house because she's not a camper. It's our backyard; it's not really camping. But anyway, uh, we—I didn't put on the rain flap because I thought we would just kind of look up at the stars. Uh, but all night long, because we live in a, a like a, the middle of the flight path, she would just see. Uh, a plane. She'd go, airplane, airplane. And about 9.30 or so, I thought, this is not going to work. So, I took, her, uh, I took her inside. And so, uh, if I were to say many trespasses, and you look up in the night sky, and I say, your trespasses are like the stars in the sky, and you look up in the night sky here in McKinney, and you see 20 or 30 or maybe 40 stars or something like that, you have one idea. But if I were to say, your trespasses are like the stars in the sky, and we're in Fort Davis which has almost no air pollution whatsoever, it's actually the the site of the McDonald uh, 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 Observatory. If I were to say that, there when you see thousands upon thousands of stars, you get to get a a better idea. And if you were to actually go to McDonald Observatory and you were to look through one of those uh, high-powered telescopes uh, and you were to gaze out into the sky and you were to see hundreds of thousands of what scientists estimate to be a septillion stars… You know what a septillion is? It's a one followed by 24 zeros. Now you start to get an idea of how many stars there are. And you also get to have a little bit of an idea what he means here when he says many trespasses. Again, it's the understatement of the year that condemnation comes about through one trespass. So you would think if one trespass brings about all of this horror... What would result, what could possibly come into the world through many trespasses, through hundreds and thousands and septillion sins and transgressions and trespasses? It would make sense for things to only get worse if Adam's one sin led to condemnation. What horrors must result when we take those trespasses and multiply them by a hundred trillion? And yet, that's exactly the point where Christ's grace is different and better. Because His grace covers the canopy of the night sky completely. That myriad transgressions are covered and we're declared righteous. Adam's trespass brings about what we deserve. Christ's faithfulness completely inverts all of our expectations. If each and every trespass, if each and every sin deserves this infinite condemnation, this infinite punishment and judgment, and yet Christ's grace justifies many trespasses. What does that say about the magnificence of His grace? What does that say about the power, the profundity, the significance, the glory, the beauty of Christ's grace? If it can atone for these many trespasses, each one in and of themselves, worthy of this condemnation, That's what Paul's going to great lengths here. He goes back and forth. He uses the language of a free gift and grace and free gift and grace. And he talks about abundance and abounding, uh, piling up all of these terms so that we would see just how lavish and beautiful and glorious this grace really is, that grace is no little small flashlight on your keychain. It's this brilliant, blinding beacon in the midst of an infinite expanse. It's the noonday sun shining with all of its brilliance. And just as the noonday sun obscures all the stars in the sky, all the hundreds and thousands and millions and septillion stars in the sky, the noonday sun is going to obscure them. So Christ's life of righteousness has covered a lifetime of our sin No matter how large that distant star, it can't be seen in the light of the day. No matter how large your sin, it's covered, it's atoned, it's forgiven. That's what Paul is saying here. Not only is Christ's gift different in nature, but also in its immediate result. Condemnation versus justification. Justification for a billion transgressions, each one deserving of condemnation. Let's keep going to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's that phrase, much more. There's that phrase, much more again. If death reigns in Christ, much more will Christ reign in life. This kingdom imagery there, the, he's using the imagery of a reign, and this kingdom imagery is, uh, is interesting. It reminds me of uh, my first trip to Kenya. My first trip to Kenya, we're staying in this missionary house, and they had one and only one movie. If I were to give everyone in the room a guess, I bet somebody would probably guess. The answer is The Lion King. That was the only movie that they had, which was pretty cool. We're actually staying in the middle of the Rift Valley. They're in, uh, in Kenya, and we're watching a movie that takes place in the Rift Valley listening to Darth Vader and Jonathan Taylor Thomas, which was cool, kind of surreal. And this verse reminds me of the, kind of the imagery of the Lion King. If you've seen uh, the story, as everyone should have, uh, you have this uh, great king voiced by James Earl Jones, Mufasa, and under him everything flourishes. There's life, there's balance, there's peace, there's all of these sorts of things uh, that exist under him. The kingdom is flourishing. There's beauty, but then Scar comes, and he becomes the king for a season, and everything withers. Everything dies under him. Everything he touches turns broken until Simba comes, and he reclaims the throne, and once again, the kingdom is restored, and there's again life and beauty and glory and all of these sorts of things. That's the imagery that you get here from these two different kingdoms. When Adam sins, death reigns. The kingdom withers away. Condemnation, shame, guilt, chaos, sickness, disorder, division, disunity, all of these things enter into the world, and there is no escape. There's no foreign kingdom to which you could defect and seek refuge. There's no distant land beyond the elephant graveyard that you could run to Death reigns in its utter universality. It has dominion in all who are under and all are under its cruel scepter. In every generation, in every country, death reigns over each and every person to ever live. How do we know that Adam's sin has ushered in this kingdom of condemnation? How do we know that each and every person who lives is under the power of sin apart from Christ? Because of this reality that death is reigns. This universality of death is going to imply a uh, universality of sin and corruption. We talked about this uh, a little bit in theological equipping that this is what's called original sin, that Adam's sin, that Adam's guilt, that Adam's corruption has been inherited by all future generations such that depravity is our new normal. We are born into this kingdom that's marked by death and condemnation. But in Christ, there is a new kingdom that has broken in to the old. And this kingdom is marked by love and joy and peace and all good things. And Christ conquers death. His resurrection is going to be the first fruits. It's the decisive battle which has turned the tide of the war. Christ's death and resurrection is D-Day, which is spelled the decisive end of the Third Reich. And we might expect at this point to see this contrast that exists where he says death reigned. So we might expect now to see the contrast that says that life reigns. But what's really interesting is that's not the contrast that Paul is going to give us. He says that death reigned under Adam. So we would expect for him to say, so now life reigns under Christ. But that's not what it says. Instead, it says that those who receive grace and righteousness will reign. Not just that grace reigns, or that righteousness reigns, or that life reigns. All of those things, in a sense, you could say are true, but that's not what He says. It's not what He says. He says that the recipients of all of those things, the recipients of righteousness, the recipients of grace, the recipients of life, they're the ones who reign. That's you and me. This is the idea of union with Christ, that Jesus reigns. And if you're in him, if you're united to him in his death and resurrection, that we share in that which he has inherited, that we are co-heirs along with him, that death reigned in Adam, and so we shared in his death. But Christ reigns in life, and so we share in that rule and reign. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we, who have received righteousness, that we will reign in Life. You see here a little bit of this language of the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. There's a sense in which believers even now can experience a little bit of this reign in life. In Romans 6 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, we see that uh, even now we are to walk in newness of life. There's a sense in which we're experiencing life now. But even more than that, there's this eschatological sense to it. There's this end time sense to it. There's a sense in which something's been inaugurated that's not yet been consummated uh, for us. There's this fuller sense in which we are waiting for this reign to take place. We're like Prince Charles or Prince William or something like that. We're the heir of parents, but we're not waiting for the death of our sovereign. That's already taken place. We're waiting for the return of our sovereign that we might reign with Him. And so you see here this echo, this other echo back to Adam that you might not have noticed at, for, uh, at first, I want to mention uh, briefly there's this echo back in this passage to Adam and the garden. Think back for a second to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates man, God creates woman, He creates them in His image. Part of that image involves reign and rulership. That's what image means. It doesn't mean that we look like God. God doesn't look like anything, He doesn't have a body, He's not spatial or anything like that, He's not physical. Whenever it says we're created in His image, that means we rule and reign, we exercise dominion. That's the first uh, mandate that's given to us. God creates man in His image, in the garden, and says, go and make the rest of the world look like Eden. He says to go and to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. And so this text here, this text here picks up on that imagery and displays how God's original purposes for creation are coming to fruition in Christ. They're coming to consummation in Christ. That all of these things that were promised, all of these things that were uh, hinted at, all of these things that we were expecting there in the garden are reaching their culmination in Jesus. That in Christ we reign. We exercise dominion over creation. The hope of Genesis is highlighted in this promise. But what's interesting is that the Bible never talks of God's promises, even though there is uh, this imagery that is like the Garden of Eden. The Bible never talks about us merely getting back to Eden. The Bible actually speaks of us getting to something far better than Eden. Our desire is not merely to return to the garden, but something better than the garden. In the garden, there's a serpent, in the garden, there's a possibility. Of the fall, but in the new creation in eternity, there is no serpent. There's nothing unclean. There's nothing impure. There's no threats. There's no obstacles. There's no potential for those things to ever enter in. God isn't just getting you back to Eden, He's getting you back to a better new creation in which you are to rule and reign along with Christ, in which the entire world now is your garden. So imagine, if you will, that you're in a car accident. You're in a car accident, and your electric blue 1992 Plymouth laser is completely totaled. 150,000 miles on it, it's totaled. Imagine it's completely your fault. What happens now? What happens now? You pay your deductible, and then insurance is going to give you depreciation value according to my estimates on a 1992 Plymouth Laser with 150,000 miles and extensive hill damage, it's like 50, 60 bucks. That's about it, right? You get a check, but imagine you open up that check from insurance and it's not for 50 bucks or 60 bucks. It's not for depreciation value on a Plymouth Laser. Instead, they've given you a check that you might buy a brand new car, And not a brand new Plymouth Laser. They stopped making those in 1994. But instead, it's a check that will cover the cost of a Bentley. It's a check that will cover the cost of a Rolls Rolls Royce or a Ferrari, whatever it might be. That's what Christ is doing. He's not merely getting you, putting things back to rights. He's making it infinitely and gloriously better. He doesn't just fix your Plymouth. He doesn't just give you depreciation value, He doesn't just give you your original value. He writes you this embarrassingly lavish check. That's what the Scripture is talking about here. Instead of one little garden, you inhabit an entire earth populated only by love and joy. Instead of just removing your condemnation, which would have been enough if you would have just remove the record of wrongs against you, that would have been enough but instead he credits all of these rights to your account as well he doesn't just remove your condemnation he also gives you justification he doesn't merely rescue you from death he causes you to reign in life he doesn't merely cover your sin but he covers you with grace and mercy and love this whole passage screams the absolute supremacy and superiority of christ and the glory of his grace that's what we need to grasp this morning, church. Yes, Jesus is like Adam in a number of ways, but He's also so unlike Adam as for it to be embarrassing to even compare them. He isn't comparing apples to apples. He's not comparing even apples to oranges or apples to PCs or something. He's comparing sorrow to joy. Some of y'all like that. Sorrow to joy. He's comparing death to life. He's comparing slavery to sovereignty. He's comparing condemnation to justification. He's comparing Adam to Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the comparison isn't even close. It's the contrast that stands out. And the contrast demonstrates the supremacy, the glory, the beauty, of Jesus Christ. As I said at the beginning, this text isn't application heavy. There's a sense in which we want to read over it because it's kind of dense theological language because it's kind of hard to understand initially and it doesn't really have much to do with you and me. It's all about Adam and Christ. There's a sense in which we want to move on. So what are you supposed to do with this when the whole point isn't what you do, it's what Christ has done. The more we do with it, the more we mess it up. Kind of like when I asked Larkin, my little uh, daughter, when I ask her to clean up a mess. She's almost two years old. Whatever she ends up doing is just smearing it around and making it so much worse. The point isn't us doing anything at all as we read this text. The point instead is that we might just simply see and savor and bask in this Glory. If Christ's glory is kind of like the sun, I used that illustration earlier. If it's kind of like the sun. Yesterday, uh, my family went on a little bike ride, and at the end of the day, had a little tan line under, uh, under my watch. Simply by being in the presence of the sun, I was changed. That's what this text can do if we just sit and stare at it long enough. You ever see a dog that's kind of lying on its back in the sun? It's got its paws up in the air. And it's just soaking up the warmth of the sun. That's what I want us to do this morning. Not literally. That would be weird. It's not a hyper-charismatic Benny Hinn or something like that laying on the ground. Uh, but metaphorically, that we would just bask in this reality if this passage is saying that one act of righteousness by the Son of God covers a septillion acts of disobedience for mankind. And I just want us to bask in that lavish grace so that we would feel its warmth. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to transition into communion. And that's what we're going to do. We're just going to consider the implications of this text uh, together. And so let me pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your sufficiency. I thank you for uh, your glory, the glory of your son. I thank you for uh, his free gift And for the grace that flows to us through him and how lavish and abundant it is. And I pray that you would give us hearts that would simply receive that, Lord. Not that we would seek to work for our justification, but that we might simply rest in the fact that Christ has already worked for it and has already purchased it for us perfectly, Lord. And so help us this morning that as we see and savor your son, that we might be transformed into his image. We ask these things because you're good. And you do good, and so we pray in Christ's name, amen.